Hey everyone, welcome to K-Pop Bookshelf. This podcast is where we will be exploring Korean popular culture through books. I'm the host of this podcast, Mina, and I can't wait to talk about books with you. Before we get started today, I just wanted to give a shout out and a huge thanks to those of you who have left positive podcast reviews for this podcast. Thanks so much. You are awesome. I hope you continue to enjoy these episodes. And even if you can't rate us, I hope you will tell your friends about us. Today, we have a very special episode. I will be joined by my good friend, Linda, who is Korean American and lived in Korea during the Tajinyo scandal that surrounded Epic High's tableau. We both listen to the podcast series called Authentic, the story of Tableau, and we break down our thoughts and opinions about the show and about the people who were involved in it. Just a few notes before we hear the discussion. Everything we say is just speculation and opinion on our part. We don't know Tableau or those who were involved in Tajinyol, and we don't have anything to do with Authentic, the story of Tableau. Also, although I'm a fan of Tableau, you do not have to agree with us and how we perceived everything that happened to him nor do you have to like Tableau or even believe him. The purpose of the episode is not to get you on any one side. We do talk at length about the merits of higher education and quote-unquote prestigious universities, but we are doing this just to guess what Tableau's parents and others may have been thinking when they thought about a Stanford graduate turned rapper. We wholly disagree with the thought that there is only one path or one definition of success, and that is higher education. Both Linda and I fully acknowledge that there are many paths to and other ways to define success in life. If you did not listen to Authentic, but you listened to my previous episode, you should understand most of what we talk about here, but there are a couple of things I didn't mention in the last episode that you may not know. For one thing, according to the Authentic podcast, Tableau's cousin, who also attended Stanford with him, wrote some blog posts in the past about Tableau's degree not being up to par. He also appears to have had some contact with Tajinyo members. He sort of participated in the Authentic podcast in that he wrote a letter explaining his side of things to the producers of the podcast, and this letter was read in its entirety in one of the episodes. Also, we talk about Tableau's elder brother, David, who was at one point also on television in Korea, and who also wrote some remarks online. He wrote in strong language using swear words, and this had an impact on Tableau's issues as well. I just wanted to give a little context about these folks in case you weren't aware of them. A note that I have to use some salty language again, in other words, I quote a swear word, and please just take into account that we will be discussing thoughts of self-harm, bullying, racism, and more. Finally, whenever Linda and I talk about, quote-unquote, the podcast, we are referencing the podcast Authentic, the story of Tableau. And now, let's get into the discussion. Okay, so today we have a special guest on the podcast, my friend Linda. Linda is a Korean-American who was born in the U.S. and also lived in South Korea from 2010 to 2015. Welcome, Linda. Hi, Mina. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So Linda is someone who I think has a really interesting perspective because you grew up here in the United States, right? Yes, I was born in the States. My parents were immigrants from Korea, but I was born here, raised here all my life. But then you also lived in Seoul for a few years as an adult. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I actually, in college, wanted to study abroad. kind of missed the opportunity because I changed my major a couple times. So when I started working, I actually decided I really wanted to still go abroad. And I was interested in living in Korea just because I had traveled there for short periods of time just for vacation. So I left my job 
And I found uh, an opportunity to teach first and got my foot in the door, went to Korea. I thought I would stay there for a year, maybe two years, and it turned into five. So, yeah. Well, that's so cool because I'm also a child of immigrants. And most of us, I think, uh, I don't know what the percentage is, don't ever have the opportunity to move back to their parents' home country and experience that. So what was it like for you to both grow up here, but then live there and experience both things firsthand? I think it was more of a culture shock than I thought it would be, interestingly. So even though I was born in the States, my parents were really strict in the household about me speaking Korean. I grew up on Korean food. I watched a lot of Korean television. Korean was actually my first language. And then I learned English later once I started attending school. Interestingly, I thought when I was in the States that I really had a good grasp of Korean culture and what it was like and you know what the language was like. But when I moved to Korea and lived there as an adult, I realized how different it really was. I think some people make the joke that you can watch the OC, but it's different from actually living in the OC. But when I went there, I came from the background of some people in the U.S., like particularly Asians, thinking that I was, I guess you would call it whitewashed. So I didn't fit into this Asian mold or Asian um, picture in the U.S., but then I went to Korea, had a little bit of a culture shock of what's happening, what's going on. And then I, you know, started making friends, got to know people through work. And I actually met quite a few native Koreans who were very confused. So they referred to me as a kyopo. I don't know if you've heard this term. There is variations. You can say kyopo kind of with that hard G or kyopo with a K. In essence, it means a native Korean who lives abroad. It's a native Korean living in America. For me, it's interesting because I technically am not a Kyopo. I, I was not born in Korea. I'm not a native Korean. I'm an American citizen born and raised here. But in Korea, as people met me and I spoke in Korean, I started to get into the culture and really understand what it meant to live there and be a part of it. People got really confused. They thought I was a Kyopo and that I originally was born in Korea. I had lived here for a portion of my life and then I had moved to the States. In fact, that was not true. So it's just interesting that I went from one perspective in the U.S. to Korea, where they kind of saw it as the opposite, essentially, that I was so Korean in some ways that it was impossible that I could have been a born and raised American citizen. Yeah, that's that's relatable. I My parents are from Bangladesh. And when I visited there as an adult, I also felt like extreme culture shock. So I can't even imagine like living there. And there's definitely at least, you know, amongst my family or people I know in Bangladesh, this idea of like people who are super Americanized versus, you know, more recently moved immigrants. So it sounds like because of your upbringing with your parents being really, as you said, strict about teaching you Korean culture, Korean language, you seemed more Koreanized than Americanized, if you will. Yeah. So maybe that's what accounted for some of the confusion. You think that's what it was, maybe? I think so, you know, because my parents were really big on still remembering things and knowing how things were in their home country. And they wanted their children, me and, and my brother, to, to have that sort of awareness. I don't think they were ever of the opinion that I shouldn't understand and be part of American culture by any means. But I do think they wanted us to have both perspectives. And I am grateful now as an adult, I think as a kid, it was hard. You know, I didn't want to go to Korean school on Saturday morning. But now being an adult and understanding how much it really 
taught me and kind of guided me through my life. And then, you know, even in Korea, that ability to adjust to the culture and understand how things worked, that was so much easier than I think some people may have had in their own circumstances. Yeah, I don't think if I moved to Bangladesh, I could know I was going to be like, oh, you're so Bangladeshi. Like, no, they were <laughs> going to be like this foreigner. And someone else with sort of hybrid identity, we are going to be discussing Tableau, the frontman for Epic High. And this whole season of my podcast has been about Tablo from Epic High, who is Korean Canadian, I think might be one way to describe him, but he's kind of lived everywhere. So but in any case, he had Canadian citizenship, but he was born in Korea. And we are going to be discussing today the series Authentic, the story of Tablo. This was an investigative podcast series about the scandal that Tablo has lived with called the Tajinyo scandal. And we're going to have spoilers in this episode. And so if you haven't listened to Authentic, I definitely recommend you do so because otherwise this discussion probably won't make too much sense. So all of the episodes of Authentic, the story of Tableau is out now. So check it out. They're all out now. Come back to this episode after you've listened to it because we're going to get into our reactions and our opinions and our thoughts about everything we heard. Okay, Linda, let's get into this. What did you think about just overall authentic, the story of Tableau? You know, I think I mentioned this to you before I started listening to the podcast that I have a really hard time just focusing on, on an audio. I tend to get distracted. You know, even the big podcasts that really took off, I struggled with. Interestingly, maybe it's parts of this story I understood better or I could, you know, empathize in certain ways. I actually really enjoyed listening to it. I listened to it in a very short span of time, meaning I binged it. I think the story was pretty well balanced in the in kind of how they approached both sides, which I was kind of surprised about because I expected it to feel one, more one-sided than it really was. So I did overall enjoy it quite a bit. I'm glad that you suggested it. And obviously it led to us here. Because I roped you into this. <laughs> <laughs> I am grateful to be here. I'm really excited just because I come from a, sometimes even from a dual identity background, mm -hmm. I think what I have is sometimes feels very different. Yeah, definitely. Like, just like we were saying before, like who else gets to live in, in, in your case, Seoul as an adult, like as much as you might grow up with Korean culture and language and everything else, media, growing up watching dramas or whatever other experiences other Korean Americans may have had living there and being there for several years, I think is, is a unique perspective. And your background is somewhat similar to Tableau's himself. So that is another reason why I asked you to listen to and just get your take on it. I really appreciate your saying the thing about uh, authentic being really well balanced. And I have to say, I was also surprised by that because Tableau is not like a quiet person. He has his own podcast. He's had other forms of media where he sort of talked about this a little bit. And just to let you know that I was on Twitter listening to a Twitter Spaces event that Tableau held. He does this from time to time. He goes on Spaces and just chats with fans. And he was talking about how even he was surprised by some of the findings of this podcast that the team was a, really an investigative journalism team just doing straight up journalism, which is unbiased and trying to be as unbiased as possible. He said things like sometimes one of his members would reach out to him and be like, hey, uh, Vice Media has contacted me. Are you aware of this? Like, is it okay for me to talk to them? And he knew, of course, that, you know, he participated in it, but there was a lot that he didn't know. It doesn't seem like he directed them in any way or like pointed them in any significant direction that would be, quote unquote, on his side. So I liked that as well, like you were saying. And prior to listening to this podcast, 
uh, was this story about Tableau and his certificate, his degree, something that you were aware of? You know, so interestingly, I think when this blew up, and correct me if I have the timelines wrong, it was actually right before I went to Korea. Yeah, I think so. So, you know, it was right at the start of when I made this whole sojourn. And I think similar to what he says in the podcast about not remembering certain conversations and certain events, I think that's just life in general for people that you can forget things that you, you know, something certainly happened, but one person has a memory of it or has a different memory of it. You know, listening to the podcast, I realized when I moved to Korea, there was an awareness. It was impossible not to know about it because the diploma scandal and all those things that had they had come up previously, I was I was aware of that. The difference was when I got to Korea, I wasn't invested into any of the the K-pop scene or the the music scene because I was so overwhelmed with moving. Yeah, you were adjusting to living there. Yeah, and adjusting to living there, adjusting to having, you know, some people treat me like I was a Korean, some people treating me like I was a foreigner. I mean, I was kind of going through all this. So, you know, it's so crazy when I listened to this podcast, how huge it was. And that I was, I just had complete tunnel vision that I wasn't aware of it. And so it's so odd when I was listening to this, I was like, wait a minute, I was there. I was in Korea as this was kind of falling out. And it's crazy that I didn't put those pieces together. So it's kind of nice to hear about it separate of my experience, because I think that's an important perspective to bring here is that while there were tens and thousands of members who are really invested in this. And that's this is what their entire lives revolved around. But there are people who had other things happening that this wasn't in their line of sight. Definitely. There had to have been like casual observers just, you know, catching a little bits and pieces of this in the news and not really taking the time to be just, you know, they probably were like, oh, this guy with his weird fraudulent diploma and not really caring to figure out if that was like real or not real or what. But then you had this other faction of people on the Tajinyo forums on Naver going crazy over this. Yeah. And it might be the fact that I'm also in essence an American. So like to me, like fraud about your education or diploma, it doesn't ping like this big, huge scandal and disaster. As I started living in Korea and as I increase my time understanding the education system because I did essentially go there as a teacher in the beginning. I did, you know, shift positions, shift a job, but that core work that I was doing in the beginning was focused on that. And so I I think over the next, you know, two years, two and a half years, I really started to understand why this was going to be a big deal or why this was a big deal, I guess I should say, because of how education is viewed in Korea and how it's emphasized. I did not, I will say in all honesty, in the beginning when I went there, I did not have that perspective. And then I developed it. I learned it. Can you speak to that? Because as an American, I know a lot of Western fans, if you will, or non-Korean fans always struggle with like, like, we'll see like these elaborate apologies for sometimes kind of innocuous things or what we would consider innocuous, like dating or falling in love or getting married, but then sometimes like full on crime. So we're just, it's like baffling because it's like this apology level, kind of the same level of formality either way. Can you expand on that a little bit, what you learned or what you realized? Yeah. And I do want to say with all honesty in the beginning is kind of the caveat to this is this is based on my own experience and also how I perceive things to be. I don't want to speak for others or make this blanket statement. So I just want to state that. But I will say, so in Korea, it's a country that essentially grew exponentially over the course of three decades about. 
they went from being a country that I think at the time had a GDP lower than Ghana in the 50s. So post Japan's colonization, post the Korean War. And then through the course, I think of 30-ish years, they were a part of the OECD, which is, it's the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. So it's top countries of industrial levels or whatever. They went from being at the bottom to all of a sudden being this hyper successful developed country in three decades. It's a very short amount of time. And part of that was really focused on asserting that education was your way out of this, that if you were able to move forward and grow your skills and be competitive, that you could leave that world behind and we could enter into a new time, a new era where it wasn't going to be ravaged by war or by colonization. It would be Korea, you know, on its own. And, you know, that perspective really explains why education is such a big deal, first off. And so anything that has to do with faking your credentials or making up your education is seen as such an incredible problem, I guess you could say, because Essentially, if you have the right credentials, the right specs, as they that's a common word in Korea, like specifications, specs, you can get the right job. You can be in the right network. You can move ahead in life. But if you don't, the likelihood of you being able to move forward is lower or you're more disadvantaged. So when people hear about these things happening, especially with those in power or in positions of wealth, you know, things like that, it's extremely frustrating because you have everything at your fingertips to get that regardless of whether or not you fake it, but then you went ahead and had an entire fake educational background drafted up. To them, that's such an extreme dishonesty, completely kind of, I would say, turning over the system that they've been taught to accept and taught to be a part of. As far as kind of your question and comment about the big apologies, especially about things that seem kind of innocuous, I think, to the Western perspective, Korea, for as many of its forward and advanced perspectives or things that they do, they're also still very conservative. And I would still very much consider it a patriarchy. So, you know, the idea that in the K-pop world, you have this image of a girl group being like, you need to be sexy, but you also need to be really innocent can't actually be be seen dating anybody or drinking alcohol because that's not your image. So you are fulfilling kind of this perfect bubble of who that person is. And when you step out of that, when you pop that, you burst that bubble, all of a sudden, everyone who thought you were what I looked up to, you are the image that we all need to be. And even you are not that they feel like they've been done a grave disservice, you know, by this icon. And so then it becomes this whole thing of, I need to apologize for, you know, making a mistake for essentially being human. But because of the big backlash and the people's reaction, I think that's what brings forward those apologies for things that in our perspective, you know, you have people dating all over the place, famous or not. So it's just, it really doesn't have the same amount of attention or reaction as it does in Korea. So I think that's kind of where you know, living in Korea, I started to see that. And I don't, I hesitate to use the word understand it because I don't, I don't think any one person, idol, K-pop idol or otherwise, can live up to those sort of standards. 
nor should they have to because they're human and they're growing into adults and they're going through the you know, all the phases that if you're not famous, you can do comfortably, awkwardly, whatever the case may be. But for them, they don't have that leniency. They don't, they don't have that room. They're expected to be that image and to carry it out for the duration of their career with no screw ups. It's a lot of pressure for sure. It seems like a lot of pressure. And then kind of my other question related to that, which by the way, I appreciate your answer so much, even though you're not like a Korean sociologist or anything, but still like it's valuable, I think, to have just your lived experience and your truth and your understanding of it, whatever that is, be out there. But so I wanted to touch on the fact that like in the US, we talk a lot about cancel culture and it's come up under like political discourse and other whatever social media discourse. But it seems like in this country, at least that if you're really privileged or very famous, you won't ever really get canceled, canceled, like you won't have to like worry about your family's safety or your family's economic status and their security. But in Korea, at least in this case with Tableau, it seemed like he really did have to worry about those things. And he was almost canceled for real. And so I just was wondering what your take was on that, or if you have any thoughts about why that might be different here versus there. And I think what you said about like the people buying into this like system they were brought up to believe in as like the correct system or this way things work here and and then getting really offended by people who seem to be sidestepping that or overstepping that. That made sense. Do you have any other thoughts about that? Yeah. You know, I think cancel culture has, okay, internationally taken the world by storm. Let's be real. You know, people understand that whether or not they're using that phrase is up for discussion. But the idea that someone in the spotlight, whether it be a K-pop star, a politician, an actor, if they step out of line in some way, shape or form, whether it be through a tweet, whether it be through action and they were caught on camera, the reaction time and then the time to forget are kind of different to me is the way I perceive it. So in the States, at least, there's already a number of examples I can think of where they just kind of step away from the spotlight for long enough, or they do other things, apologies, or they do charity work, whatever the case may be to show that they change and that's not who they are, that they can bounce back. Or on the flip side, the controversy of them being canceled for whatever thing, for example, I don't know, JK Rowling and her transphobic comments, she bounced back because her books started to sell like crazy all over again, mm -hmm. following that kind of moment for her and canceling her over her comments. So I think there is this idea in the States of maybe not forgive and forget. Redemption, maybe. Yeah, redemption. Or that you just, you get kind of tired of it and you forget. And then people just, you know, slide back in and it, it just happens. I feel like in Korea, the extreme reaction to things is not just from the public you also lose your community of peers in some sense. So that's including maybe your agency or your management group, maybe other stars, other what I would call peers for them. Because if you lose all of that support in Korea, it seems to me almost detrimental to any continuance of your, of your livelihood and lifestyle that you had prior to being canceled. So here in the States, it's more, okay, we're going to weather out the storm and you're still going to have a publicist. You're still going to have a manager and an agent and somehow we'll weather this and see if we can recover. In Korea, I use this as a good example from blanking on his name, but he was the star of that recent drama, Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha. Mm -hmm. I think his name was Kim Zono. Yeah. 
he recently like basically lost all support it sounds like from his agency sponsors yeah everything was wiped out in in an instant so the reaction time and any follow-up and response and recovery is almost non-existent when you cut somebody's legs out from underneath them so that disparity i think really was showcased in this whole tableau podcast because he was not only the first you know, national, big, huge case of that in Korea. But it was also, I think, one of the most extreme cases you could have seen play out. It's interesting you mentioned the thing about peers leaving or maybe not being like Tablo mentioned in the podcast as well as in spaces that he didn't know who to trust, like his own peers, people in his company, other artists, whoever else he worked with, collaborated with, even the his child's pediatrician or whoever, he didn't know if these people were part of the Tajinyo or not, because sometimes he got this like sensation, like, you know, when you feel like someone just doesn't like you or something, he would get this sensation. And I don't, I personally don't think he was being paranoid, at least not all the time. I think there probably were instances where he was had this creeping awareness of like, this person might have an opinion about me, right? And that was probably difficult for him, whether or not people want to extend that sympathy to him. I, I could see him feeling like I don't know who to trust and feeling like a possible lack of support from peers and producers and whoever else he had to work with. Right. And Korea has that whole concept of nunchi, which I think you've previously mentioned, but I, I think it becomes very, you become hyper aware in that sense of listening, engaging other people's moods and how... Can you can you just define nunchi for anyone who's listening to this, but... Uh, doesn't know what it is. It is one of the hardest. I mean, there. It's so interesting because Korean words. There are certain words that I'm like. There's just not something in English that I can describe it with. But if I had to just put it into a few words, I guess I would say it's the idea or the subtle art or the ability to be able to observe, listen, engage a person's mood with sometimes no actual interaction or any verbal dialogue. So the word itself, nunchi, means, nun means I. And I think mm-hmm. chi, if I'm correct, means like power or force. So it's like just visually being able to look at a person and gauge what they're feeling is something that comes up often in Korean culture. When I first got there, someone said, oh, like, you have great nunchi. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I was just like, looks like someone's in a bad mood. So I'm going <laughs> to try to avoid them or try to be extra nice so that their day gets better. I wanted to get into some of the things that the Tajinyo user form users were saying was like the reason why they didn't really believe him. So yeah, I want I one of the things I wanted to listen to in the podcast was uh, the other podcast, Authentic, the story of Tableau, is whether there's something like a combined degree program. So Stanford had a combined BA, Bachelor of Arts and MA, Masters of Arts program, which is what Tableau was enrolled in. And he apparently like took it in such a way that it was even fast for someone normally in that program. So a lot of people didn't believe that he would earn two degrees from Stanford in that amount of time. So do you have any feedback about like why Koreans wouldn't believe that's possible? Or is there not really combined degree programs that you know of in Korea or what happened there? You know, I'm less familiar with the university level of education in Korea. I was not part of that scene. I myself never, you know, got to take any classes in like an exchange program, sadly. But I will say Koreans, when they think of a university in the States, when they think of studying abroad, I think they have a very specific view of what it's supposed to be. You know, you go to school for four years, undergraduate, and then you go on to graduate school. And that graduate school, dependent on your fields, can be two years, it can be three years, it can be six years if you're going into medicine. I don't know. And so for them, 
it's hard to think outside of the box. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the numbers are in terms of how often a student might skip a grade or they might be able to take classes. Like in the U.S., you can take AP classes or you can take classes at a community college, whatever, to get college credit so that when you actually enter college as a freshman, you could already be ahead and be on par with like a sophomore, you know? I don't know how that works out in Korean culture. I think from what I understand about the high school education, the case of that is very unlikely. But in the States, we know that because we know our system better. In Korea, you're going based off just the general perspective. I think most often people who are not able to move abroad, study abroad, send their kids to a university in the States, aren't going to sit there and delve into the details of what's possible, what the education looks like, what the length of education could be. So to have someone not only finish in such a short chunk of time, but on top of that, that it be even shorter. And then that person come back to Korea and they're a hip hop artist. (laughs) It doesn't mix like that image doesn't align in any way for them, because I think it's so outside of the box of what they expect. Yeah, I I felt like they were really putting Stanford on like a pedestal of like, or like Ivy League schools on this like very intense pedestal. When you come back, you should look a certain way, behave a certain way. People kept saying it's authentic that Tableau didn't look like someone who had gone to Stanford or what didn't behave how a Stanford graduate should behave. And it makes sense that you're saying like people who didn't experience actually like going abroad or have any idea what the American education system might actually be like, but just has this idea about it may have these beliefs. And I find it interesting that they were like hip hop artists sounds fake, you know, like they were really kind of dragging him a little bit. Is it is it still you think especially in I mean, this was like 10 years ago, and, and maybe a little more in light of internet and things. Do you think that those rigid ideas of like, this is a hip hop artist, this is a Stanford graduate? Do you think that's like relaxed at all a little bit or not? You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hazard a guess, I would say just because it's also, I swear time in Korea moves at hyperspeed because I've been gone from Korea now. I came back in 2016. So it's been six years since I returned to the States. And when I talk to my friends back in Korea, sometimes I can't keep up. I, you know, I'm like, what are you talking about? That wasn't the way it was. And they're like, Linda, it's, it's been six years. It might as well be a different decade. So I'm going to hazard a guess and say that because of how huge the Tableau scandal was, I think it would be impossible for people not to see a different perspective, to not have maybe they're not out of the box, but maybe they're peaking, you know, okay. <laughs> maybe they're reaching. Okay. Um, I think it would be hard pressed not to think that, okay, fine, you can go to an Ivy League school abroad and still come back and not be a Samsung employee or an LG employee at one of these huge conglomerates. That's not always the path that you take, but I will probably still say that there are still going to people who are on this on the fence and say still if you're going through all that and you go to an ivy league why would you pursue that like that doesn't make sense i'm going to say that it's probably a little bit of both It's it's a mix i actually have to mention this now then i just thought it was so wild with tableau's cousin who he was in school with in canada then went to stanford with and his cousin's whole deal like to this day was like oh sorry for kind of getting that tajinyo lighting that fire because he wasn't the one who started touching you know, those forums or starting the whole conspiracy theory thing. But he definitely, I think, added a lot of fuel to the fire because he maintained like, yeah, I don't know how Tableau did this either. And then now looking back on it, however many years later, he wrote that letter to the podcast saying, 
well, Tableau's schooling in Stanford wasn't rigorous. So like, who even cares? I don't know. It was just a weird vibe about this is scholarly and academic, like, you know, STEM or whatever he was saying. But then the arts, fine arts, like that's nothing. He slept through those classes. That's kind of the vibe he gave off to me on the, what they were describing from his letter in the podcast that that's not academic enough, not scholarly enough. He didn't, he and I had different experiences because I did whatever it was that he did, but Tableau just did fine arts. So that's, that's like a joke degree almost. What did you think of his cousin and his weird aloofness in the beginning and then his maintaining this this line now? You know, it's unsurprising, I think, his whole perspective of Tableau's education at Stanford being loose. I think you see that at any university, whether it be an Ivy League or, or state or community college. Some people, when I was growing up, people would say that about like comm majors. There's like, oh, that's such an easy major. Like, you know, you're just doing it because you don't want to major in anything else. And then if you see, you know, somebody, they're an engineering major, then it's a different, oh, well, you know, that person, obviously very smart, has all these goals, very rigorous education. It's hilarious to think that, you know, you get into the same university and then there's still this hierarchy based on what you choose to study or do with your life. I think for Tablo, he chose the best option possible to fit with what he wanted, but still fulfill what his parents were hoping for him, which was go to an Ivy League, become this, you know, successful, steady, you know, stable adult, which is something that it sounded like his parents didn't have, at least his father and his upbringing. As far as his cousin's kind of aloofness and I think reluctance to be on the podcast outside of that letter he sent in. I would say it's a little bit of caution because he didn't feel like he burnt his fingers a little bit on the fire. Wouldn't be human. You know, I think he inside might not be close with Tableau, nor does he really have much in common with him, maybe. But I do think he sounded as if he needed to defend himself and saying, I wasn't the one who started those forums, nor was I ever saying he never went. I actually am saying he went to Stanford. I just don't think that his education is on par with what the Korean people think that that education meant. Whereas Koreans are just saying like Stanford, that's the title. So it must be, it's a prestigious Ivy League university and that's enough. Whereas for him, he attended the school. He was what sounded like a high achiever, first violin, et cetera, et cetera. His experience is what he, I think, is identifying with the rigor and prestige of attending Stanford means in Korea. Yeah, I, I I think he probably was somewhat remorseful of some of these, but he's also like, it's not my deal. But then what they said he participated in at the time of the whole scandal, it was almost like, you know, his degree is legit, but it's not as legit as mine or something. I don't know if that's what he was trying to convey when back when he was, whatever participation he had in that, which was I think somewhat minimal, but not zero. And then now he, I think he does see, like that's what came across to me. Then he was writing a letter so that he wouldn't be put on the spot. That was the impression I got. Like he didn't want to be put on the spot, say something he didn't mean, but he didn't also want to come out out and out, apologize to avoid all that is why I think he wrote a letter, which, you know, I think that's mean from an outside perspective. But if I were him, I would probably do the same thing, like approach it that way so many years later. I mean, it's like the perspective of a phone call versus a text, you know, like, what you say on the phone, it goes, that's it. It's the moment's over versus the text. You can sit there and like mull over it and kind of like rewrite your words and rephrase it in the exact way you want to deliver it. And I think for him, that might've been what the letter was, that he was able to say his piece, say it the way that he wanted it said. Because I think in the podcast, he the caveat to having it read for the podcast was that they read it word for word. There was 
no changes. There's no paraphrasing. Yeah. He demanded they read it word for word. Exactly. So I think for him, it was important that his message be given the way he wanted it to be delivered. In that scenario, that had to have played a part in his decision to, to write the letter and to be done with it. Totally. I also think in his mini defense, the cousin's past life as, you know, going on forums, starting his blog, saying whatever, talking crap on Tableau online, whatever he was doing. I'm sure that he didn't realize it was going to lead to all of this. Like this, that's not something he could have predicted. I don't think that was his intention. And so it snowballed into this whole deal. And I think part of him not apologizing is almost like owning it a little bit. Like whatever part he played in it, it did. It is what it is. At least that's the vibes I got from his letter. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. And, you know, I think at that time, so I'm trying to remember when he said they were at Stanford. Was it like late 90s? 2002 is when Tableau graduated. Yeah, so late 90s, early 2000s. If you think back to that time, blogging and things like, what is it, Live Journal or Live Journal. Zanga? I'm really showing my age at this point. Those things were kind of phenomenons that you went on there and you could write out your diary online for people to read and you could bash on someone, you could praise someone. That was such a new thing. And I think people took to it because it felt fantastic to use that as a as a vehicle for yourself. Mm-hmm. What I don't think any of us, especially who were, were young and took to that, you didn't really think about the downstream effect. Well, we didn't have the you know experience we have now where we see the effects of what you do online and how it can impact people's real lives. We right. didn't have that perspective when we were younger, when things like that were first emerging on the internet. Mm-hmm. So he, even if he meant to take Tableau down, I don't think he thought he was going to be successful doing it on his Zanga or whatever he was doing. Yeah. I, I think that for him, it was an outlet in some ways. And I don't think any of us at that time, at least for me, because I will put my, I'll throw my hand up. I had a Zanga. I totally did it. I jumped on that bandwagon. I definitely didn't think, oh, 15 years from now, someone is going to dig up this post that I wrote and use my words out of context and use it as fuel to light a fire, kind of burn someone at the stake, so to speak. I would say too, back then, everything on the internet felt more ephemeral. It didn't feel like this is here forever, which is like something they teach now, right? Like internet security classes to children. It's like, whatever you do is there forever. It can never be fully erased. Like it's going to come back to haunt you. Like just assume that. We didn't have that perspective. Oh, definitely not. I mean, today you put up a bad tweet for like five minutes and someone's already screenshotted it and it's going to be viral before you can even take it down, probably if it's controversial enough. So yeah, back then it was it was intangible in a lot of ways. And so I'm sure he it was an outlet for him. But now 10, 20 years down the line, it's probably a different story. Totally. I want to talk a little bit about Tala's other family members. So we talked about the cousin. So his older brother, I'm just going to recap a little bit of what I remember from the podcast. Correct me if I'm wrong. His older brother was saying some things and it came to light that maybe he might have given the wrong impression about his own degree. Tableau's parents seemed to feel like from how Tableau was describing it, that maybe Tableau was somewhat to blame for some of this. Like he kind of put his own foot in it by being into hip hop and becoming a celebrity by not listening to them and doing something more traditional with his Stanford education. And then on the flip side of that, you have like his members and his wife, which we can talk about them later. But what did you think about his nuclear family, his siblings, his parents and their reactions or their experiences with this? Yeah. So I know that he had a brother and a, he has a brother and a sister. I don't think the sister was really a part of the scene. Like she was kind of separated from it. His brother, I believe his name was David. So if I remember correctly, he worked for EBS, which is the Korean educational broadcasting system. 
It is a network that is very much like, it's like you get tutoring over TV. Like you can watch someone do a lesson. It is a educational program. It's an educational network that aims to teach and engage and enlighten people all across Korea. So that job not only is prestigious in some ways, but it is also a box of who someone should be when they work there. And I know in the podcast, what blew up was two things for him. One, that in his EBS profile, the from my understanding in the podcast, they mistakenly said he had earned his master's degree. Right. Whereas in actuality, in the U.S., he had pursued and started his master's degree and never finished. Correct. And so because of that incorrect information on the EBS website, people grabbed onto it immediately and was like, obviously, it's the whole family issue. Look at his brother. It's not just Tablo. They're all lying. Obviously, we need to get down to the truth. The second part that really, I think, hit for the brother is when he had watched a variety, Korean variety program, which I don't know how familiar you are. I'm sure you're, you're aware, but there's different TV shows that have like a comedic challenge element. Like you go and you, you try to do like win a game in some way. Well, one of them at the time was about being in New York and using whatever English skills you had to achieve these little little challenges or missions, I should say. So a lot of the people who are on that show are not dumb, right? <laughs> They're very bright people. You can you can be funny and hilarious and have that because you have some basis of knowledge to work off of, I think. And so the brother went on a rant saying, you know, these are educated, smart people who purposely went out and made a fool of themselves. Right. For comedy. For comedy. And which I get, it's a TV show. That's what it's built off of. But basically the perspective that all of those Americans, those New Yorkers saw was this bumbling Asian person who barely knows how to speak any English trying to order a coffee. Yeah. And I could see how, um, you know, David spent time in Canada as well. And so someone with a more Western upbringing or Western perspective is more sensitive to that than maybe people who are natively born and raised and still live in Korea because we have these issues with like stereotyping in Hollywood films and we're a lot more sensitive to it because we have to live it, right? Any of those stereotypes that get boiled down into racism or, you know, microaggressions or whatever it is, we have to live those things. So him going off on that blog or post or wherever he wrote it made sense to me as an American who is from a ethnic background, if you will, and um, him being sensitive about it. But I could see too, if uh, someone in Korea was like, what are you even talking about? Like, it's not that deep, you know? What did you think of that? I totally agree with you because I think I said this to you when I first started the podcast and I'll fully admit I was trying to slack a little bit. The The first episode of the podcast upset me, extremely upset me because there was a moment where Tablo talks about his first day or first week or whatever at a, a Canadian school where he was surrounded by people he didn't know and they played a prank on him, the kids, where they put some school supplies in his pocket unknowingly and then when they were out on the playground, blamed him for stealing from the other kids. I'm not saying that exact thing happened, but I am. It is very difficult to separate my experiences with racism based on what I look like versus the fact that I was born and raised here. It's hard to separate that. You know, I really wanted to skip that part of the, the podcast, which I think I, I did in the beginning. And then I went back and I had to listen to it because I realized how important it was 
that sometimes you have to revisit those things. And so for the brother, I think that's the place because he has both views. He grew up in Korea for a time. He grew up in Canada. I think they grew up somewhere else in, in Asia as well. Indonesia. Yeah. So he has this perspective of people thinking he is not able to keep up. I think in combination with him working for EBS, it's impossible not to feel frustration with why are you continuing this perspective? Why are you perpetuating? Yeah. This? Why are you leaning into this instead of educating? Couldn't you have done a different game or a different thing to highlight this comedy? And so Korea, obviously, there was a huge backlash because they're like, what kind of person who works for EBS and comes from this family? Well, he dropped the S-bomb, he said. He did. <laughs> so the word shit, I yeah, think. I yeah, I think he said the S-bomb. And I think he dropped an F-bomb, too. Oh, yeah, maybe. So, like, there were multiple curse words, which, you know, take it from me. There's a time and a place. I get it. I also, <laughs> I also curse sometimes, and sometimes I don't. There is a time and a place. I think the manner in which he relayed that message struck a chord with native Koreans of you are going against the grain. And that just, again, ties in with Tablo not looking like what everyone thought a Stanford grad should be like. So now you've got this combination of brothers not being that little boxed image of what Koreans thought they should be. So, and then how about like his mom, it seems like, you know, was not here for any of this. Like she just was like, I mean, he didn't, Tablo almost didn't really speak much about her. But the impression I was getting from his interviews with the makers of this podcast, Authentic, was that she kind of held him responsible or that he should have just done what she said or something along those lines. Did you get that same sense or did you have a different take? I did get that same sense. And, you know, there were moments, not just in the podcast, but I wanted to watch some clips just because I'm not a huge Epic High fan. I mean, I like some of the music and I'm familiar with it, but... I kind of go in and out with my love for K-pop. So I like some of the earlier 90s stuff. But he has mentioned her, like how he enjoyed going to her salon and playing with the rubber bands and the face shields and things like that. So he obviously had a relationship. He had an upbringing where his mother was present. I think when it came to this whole scandal, there was so much tension and hostility of if you had just done what I had told you, none of this would have happened. And I think like, you know, in a lot of cultures, Asian cultures, my family being from an Asian culture too, you, what happens to you reflects on the whole family. And it ruined her reputation too. People were calling her salon and calling her a whore and cussing her out and whatever else and being like, your son's a fraud, your both sons are frauds or whatever. And that must have been so hard for her. Like her life changed too. It wasn't just, oh, tableaus in the news. It was like, she also was being directly targeted. Well, I think that touches on the whole idea of you are a reflection of your parents and your upbringing. So obviously, if your sons are like this, what are you like is kind of the connotation I could see happening because it's hard to separate family. I think when you think of something happening, people have a hard time separating that a person can be who they are regardless of what their parents may or may not have taught them in life. And I think for Tablo, the missed point is he was trying to live up to everything his parents wanted to the point of what he could do. And then after that, it's, I've done that. I've done as much as I can for everything you wanted. Now I'm going to do what I want and what I need. I don't think for his mother that that maybe she never accepted that. Maybe she saw that as rebellion. And so 
she ultimately at the end couldn't accept that this wasn't somehow at, at his doorstep, that it wasn't his fault. It brings me back a little bit to the title of authentic. Like I keep thinking about the title because authentically Tableau's not like a Stanford student that a lot of people think of, right? He's not like he didn't like school. He didn't care about school. He literally just went to Stanford and finished as fast as he possibly could to get the hell out of there. And I don't know that his mom saw the authentic tableau or, or wanted to see the authentic tableau. And I know a lot of parents and a lot of cultures have that experience with their kids. You have this idea of what your kids should be like or your family should be like. And if it doesn't go that way, some people have a really big struggle with accepting that. Oh, definitely. I mean, my parents, I think, had similar dreams when I was little. They wanted me to be a doctor or they wanted me to be a lawyer. When I refused both of those options growing up, they tried to get me into pharmacy. You can't hold the parents at fault for wanting better for their kids, especially better than they had, or, you know, a life that will lead them to comfort or stability. You cannot fault a parent for that. I do think there is this sense of pushing into being someone you're not that can become dangerous. And I think you're right in that maybe his mom never got to see who he authentically was because he was doing everything he could to be exactly who they wanted. So that's all they really got to see, you know. And as far as just doing what he could to get through and graduate Stanford as quickly as possible, I think sometimes people forget just because you're not the best student or that you didn't always strive to do those things doesn't mean you don't have enough motivation in your life to make things that seem impossible happen. And for him, that was the motivation was his parents, it sounded like, and how much they wanted this for him. And so he did what he needed to do to get there. And once he did it, he was just like, okay, I'm done. Now I'm going to figure out me. I think, too, an overlooked aspect of this is just because you don't like something doesn't mean you're not amazing at it. Well, I mean, even in the podcast, when he is being interrogated by that detective of the national police, the detective of the interrogation said a comment that clearly Tablo was smart. He was clearly able to prove all the things about him were in actuality true. And so I think people forget just because you put a public persona on does not mean that you are not way more than what is being shown to the public. And some of that has changed now because you have so many, so much more visibility with like people doing live on like Insta or like on, you know, using TikTok, you get so much more information. But if you think back to 2010 and then even before then, when he was not even in Korea and he was in college, you didn't have any of that. You know, you didn't have this perspective. So what you saw on camera at a show in an interview, that's what you got. And that was it. Yeah, it seemed like he was playing a role on the variety shows and stuff he was on back in the day, which I haven't watched a ton of those clips, but I've seen some. It seemed almost like he was playing the role of like slacker, goofball, and he was like comfortable in that role because he maybe played that even at school. And he was maybe an artist at heart and knowing these things like, you know, my parents would hate it if I studied fine art. I think also if you think about anyone who strives to be famous or make it in the world of like K-pop dumb or otherwise, you know, you kind of want to feed into people's expectations a little bit. And you also want to have this entertainment value. And so for him, that I think was, was that persona. Unfortunately, in some ways it backfired because I think people were like, oh, you are so nonchalant about getting into an Ivy League. You talk so casually as if it doesn't cause people to, to work their asses off like blood and tears to get to that place. But for you, you just, you know, happen to make it happen. That might have been something that backfired in Essen and, and, and was part of that trigger of like, 
the rest of the world, that's not how that works, right. you know, but you don't hear about everyday occurrence. You hear about the exceptions. You hear about the one-offs and he is that circumstance. And if he had walked around just like flouting his Stanford degree, that would have been a different side of annoying and a different backlash potentially. So I feel like he couldn't win almost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was going to be tough. Yeah. He'd be like a show off. He'd be like pompous or something. I think a lot for K-pop stars, a lot of them spend their entire lives only doing that. So for someone to have gone into adulthood and they got a degree and then you decide to do this, like, oh, so you just happen to be good at everything. Like I, I could see the, the jealous factor. I I would love to be a fantastically smart writer and rapper, but I am tone deaf and <laughs> not a writer. <laughs> well, there's still time, Linda. There's still time. There is, there's still time. You're right. <laughs> to pivot to a bit of a sad topic, uh, you know, Tableau asserts that this whole deal, this incident, uh, Tajinho and this years long scandal, it's, it's like we distill it down to one thing, but it, it was like years of this abuse and targeting of him and it affected his, I'm sure other family members health as well, but he asserts it killed his father. It was like the thing that actually killed his father. And I, I found that so sad. I remember watching on, I don't know if you saw, there's an episode of The Return of Superman where they go, they being Tableau and his daughter, Haru, who's like a toddler. She's like five, maybe at that. And they go to his father's grave, just the two of them. And, you know, she just, she's so little, but she can like attune that her dad is so sad and she's like trying to comfort him. And I just remember watching that and I didn't really know so much about Tadinho, but I know he had kind of said, this this is what killed my dad. And so I was so mad back then, but this podcast may be furious with Tajinho, not that they intended to do this, but but the fact that it ultimately resulted in his dad's death. In this case, I, I personally side with Tableau on that. Maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, I just wondered what your thoughts were <laughs> on that. You know, I am certainly not a physician, but I do believe and I have seen the impact of mood and stress and anxiety that plays on people physically. I think that's today a much more common topic. You hear more about mental health and management of that. And it's certainly not where it needs to be. It's still something that needs to move forward. But the fact that people at that time didn't connect that the stress and the level of extreme sadness that that family must have felt throughout this entire occurrence didn't play a role on someone's physical health to me would be ridiculous. I mean, I think if someone is feeling in the best of health, but then is being just thrown under the bus constantly, constantly hearing about how horrible their sons are, how horrible their upbringing was, how you lied about everything, how it must be your fault, you can't take that inside and not for it to not fester in some way. And in this, I do agree with you. I don't know whether the cancer would have come back later down the line and maybe it would have been caught. Maybe the scenario of how it played out might have been different. But considering the timeline and the impact this had on their family, it's impossible to separate those to me in my mind. I was even thinking like, what if this was true and Tableau had falsified everything and he was just a walking, breathing lie? Like, is it worth it to come after him to this extent, which brings us back a little bit to cancel culture, that your whole family is just suffering and everyone's suffering and undergoing so much stress that it basically takes it out of you. It kills you. I mean, in K-pop and Korean, we've seen like Korean celebrities who unfortunately make extreme decisions as they euphemism goes. 
because of just public pressure overall. And then to have this level of stuff, even if it was true, I'm like, was it worth all this? Like, do we really need to go this hard about this? Like, even if I don't culturally understand, like why we care about fraudulent diplomas, I, even if you do care, even if I didn't understand that, do we have to take it to this point? I just kept thinking that it was, I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's very interesting because in some ways, I think the people who were part of the Tajino also was using it as a vehicle to attack that entire problem, not just Tablo himself as the only problem. I think for them, he was the vehicle to deal with that issue and to face it and find the truth and say, this is really what's happening. And this is why this can't be trusted and all these things. I mean, it's very interesting because if you think about cancel culture in general, I think the history of it, it actually comes from marginalized communities having a way to say and having a power, having a pull. I did a little bit of reading into it. I'm certainly not an expert at all, but the roots of where it came from was giving power to a group of people who otherwise may not have a say. And in this instance, I think that's what Tajinyo felt, is that they were the lay people. They were the people who were working their butts off to try to maybe hopefully send their kids abroad, to hopefully maybe send their kids to a good university in Korea. And, you know, here comes this guy following, I think, on the heels of the museum curator who also falsified her education in that. Well, she actually did falsify, but Tabla didn't. Right. It came to light. She like really did that. And it took the world by storm because it wasn't just her. It was number of elites in Korea who had done that. Politicians, cabinet ministers. It was crazy. That's a really good point that this was like a way for Tajinyo members to feel like they were taking back or upending this system that was like inherently unfair. Because if you were privileged, you could like buy yourself a forged degree or you could whatever their complaints about it was. And and Tablo ended up being their poster child for this whole cause. And in that light, then let's talk a little bit about the Tajinyo and how how did you think or what did you think about the way that the podcast covered the Tajinyo members? You know, I thought they actually did a pretty fantastic job, mostly because if you're a member of the Tajinyo, you're also behind this veil of anonymity when you're online. It's a very binary world. You write your piece. No one has to see your face. I know that in the podcast, they were able to identify and then get some real identifying information, names, addresses, phone numbers, but that was not for the vast majority. Just like here in the States, I mean, yeah, you can get an IP address, but there are so many ways. I'm not a hacker, but there's VPN. There's There are ways that you can hide behind a wall so no one knows. And for an investigative journalism piece to try to work your way behind that veil would be extremely difficult. And the fact that they were able to even speak to members who were part of it, they were able to go to Chicago and search for and seek out this person. It, to me, read as you are doing everything you can to get this balanced perspective, because I don't think this podcast was about vilifying anybody. No, it certainly wasn't trying to have a redemption arc for Tablo. It was to find the truth. And the way they did that with approaching the Tajinyo and how to tell their side of the story, I thought was extremely well done considering the limitations they likely had. Yeah, I mean, I was going to just point out for the listeners that some of the members of Tajinyo ended up being sentenced to jail and it went to court because Tablo sued them and pursued the lawsuit even after they tried to like 
come to some kind of agreement or to dismiss the charges and Tableau was like, nope, you're getting sued. And so some people went to jail and in the last episode he mentions like, you know, it wasn't all that redemptive for him either. Like he wasn't like, yay, now you're in jail. Like, haha. It was all miserable. Like it was the whole experience was miserable for him. And I think they did a really good job of explaining that. I thought it was interesting when they went to the man's house in Chicago, who's one of the major people you know, players in the whole Tajinyo thing. And, and now it seems like they didn't really, of course, say this explicitly, but he seems like he's someone who's now lost some of his faculties, maybe, or maybe he always was someone with like some sort of mental illness or cognitive issue. And maybe it was almost like maybe this was why he went so hard on Tajinyo at the time. And he's just progressively declined since then. And I think they did handle that very sensitively. It, it didn't seem to me like, and maybe other listeners disagree, but it didn't seem to me like had they talked to him more extensively that they were going to like take him down or like gotcha and like you're screwed now. It, it was seemed like they were just really genuinely trying to find out like what were your motivations? Why were you doing this? What was your beef with Tableau ultimately? Or it didn't seem like, uh, t- like you said, t- trying to take anyone down or make anyone the hero or the villain really. Yeah. I think in the podcast, I believe she must have been a producer. I think it was Stephanie who went to Chicago because she had been nearby. And she talks about a moment that she's in that apartment complex trying to get a hold of, I believe the screen name idea was What Becomes. It was like a major instigator, a player in the Tajinyo community. She was sitting there speaking with a neighbor and emergency workers are coming in basically bring back a resident who lived in that apartment complex. And she said this line that was like, you know, I felt like I was in a space that I shouldn't be in, that I shouldn't be a part of the picture. Like this was inappropriate. That moment struck me because it was real and it was human that she was there to try to find more information and truth, but she wasn't willing to go to this extreme and be invasive and force herself into that position. So I got the impression that it was a well-balanced approach of, of just trying to find out, hey, what could you be going through or what is your backstory to have brought this on? So I appreciated that. And I think that was valuable that they kept that in there. Just like you said, humanize everything, like the producers and makers being part of the story and being there when Tableau's crying and like, it just added, I think, these elements to this that they were that just made it feel more more authentic, if you will, the name of the podcast <laughs> <laughs> to me, anyways. Um, and also, so they did talk to someone from Tajinyo that still kept saying to this day, like he was like, yeah, I guess Tavo probably went to Stanford, but like I just don't know why he couldn't like answer my questions and like prove himself to me and explain himself. Like it just seemed like. I don't even know what he was looking for anymore at that point. And I, I don't know what you thought about it, but my opinion or like my reaction to this was like, why does Tableau have to explain anything to you? Like, who even are you? Or like, why does he owe you anything? Like, yes, the system is flawed. Yes, you worked just as hard as he probably did. But that's like life. Like, you know, we can't all be zillionaires or celebrities or successful or anything. If you take the realm of K-pop and their like, quote unquote, factorization, factoryification of churning out idols, a lot of people go through the exact same training process as everybody else, but they don't get to be in EXO or in BTS or whatever. So what was your reaction to this guy just being like, well, if he could just explain himself to me, maybe I'll forgive him, which I hated. It was kind of two layers. So I think initial reaction was very similar. Who are you to think that anyone has to prove themselves any more than what's already been out there? Like, you asked for transcripts. He provided transcripts. You guys pushed for an investigation by the police. An investigation was complete. What more could be done? That was my first gut reaction. That instantaneous like bubble of like, 
how much more do you need before you accept that that is what is needed and that's it? As I kind of mulled on it and I thought about it, I also understood in some ways that if you choose a life in the spotlight, if you choose to be a public figure, you are also choosing to say that what you do and your lifestyle and your choices are available to the public. And that is a sad truth with being in the spotlight is that your face is known. And so you could be at a restaurant and you drink one too many glasses of wine and someone sees you stumble out the door. And next thing you know, you see in the news, you know, so-and-so is a drunk and all they do is party. That storyline is an unfortunate reality of being a famous person. And so part of choosing that lifestyle is also knowing that those are things you might need to deal with and handle. So I could see from that person's perspective why they felt that entitlement. Some people draw a hard line, but that also happens a little bit easier if you have this A-list backing. You know, if you're trying to make it in the industry or make it in the field, you want your face to be out there a lot. You want to become known and become heard. I'm not saying it's fair, but I did think long and hard. You know, it's the same reason why I don't like having an online presence and I don't like doing certain things because I'm unwilling to have people who don't know me have that much pull or information or details about my life. Yeah, that's a good perspective. Tableau mentions, he mentioned it on his Twitter. He mentions it, I think, in the podcast too, that in this day and age of how we use social media, right? And everything's getting worse. And he, he kept referencing, like, he was one of the first people this has happened to, but not the only person it's happened to. And he maintains that it could happen to really anyone in this day and age and in the future, regardless of status, fame, money. I just wanted to know if you agree with that or. Oh. I definitely agree with that. I mean, I think you can see that just on your own. You're on any social media platforms. Cancel culture, I don't think, stops at any which level. The level at which that the reaction and the downstream effect it carries certainly is different. The storyline of Tableau and how big it got, it may not happen for someone who is a little bit more obscure, obviously, but it could still have you know, job loss, you could still have expulsion from school. You know, I agree with him that you could be anybody in the world at any given time and you step out of line and it could happen. Cancel culture doesn't stop at wealth or at fame. I think it's pretty much there across the board. I know there's like a, a documentary that Monica Lewinsky did with John Ronson about public shaming and like, uh, you know, cancel culture for regular people who lose their jobs, they lose their social status, and they and they have these real effects, unlike someone like, you know, I don't know, well, Harvey Weinstein's in jail now. But like the, those types of caliber of people who are like so rich and famous and powerful and got away with horrible things for so long, for regular people, something more innocuous or less like extreme as like these massive amounts of crime that they might have said or done comes back and has these real life consequences for them that they don't have a cushion of powerful friends, tons of money, access to whatever, jets, private jets. Yeah. Being the daughter of people who own a small business, I don't think people would associate it or they would see it the same, but a bad Yelp review, a bad Google review, any of that could certainly cancel a business. You could have one terrible moment. And that's people's livelihoods. Exactly. It's interesting that he made that kind of blanket statement, but it, to me, rang very true. I just don't like like some of the Twitter pylons and witch hunts and let's dox people and give out their personal information, which is what happened to Tablo's family. We didn't have, we didn't call it doxing back then, but they found out his mom's salon name and number and 
So he got doxxed, essentially. I mean, yes, he's a public figure, but his family members are not. So I hope whoever listens to this, whether you care about Tableau himself or not, just remembers that, you know, there's real life people and real life consequences for most people. They can't just like coast on their once upon a time fame or their current amounts of money in the bank. Most people will be can be so disproportionately affected by something they say flippantly, casually, or in this moment of not their most highest levels of, of grace. So let's kind of start wrapping this up on a happier note. <laughs> did you watch Return of Superman with Tableau and Haru or what did you think of it? Or Yes. You know, I have watched snippets of that show, not just for Tableau, like even previous to us talking today. But after listening to the podcast, I did look up some clips just to see the dynamic. And I watched a couple different ones. I watched the one that you mentioned earlier about where they go to see his father, the two of them. She's like offering up her roasted chestnuts up to the sky to her grandfather. Because he's in heaven. Yes, because he's in heaven. The father is past. It was just so wholesome. You know, like I think a lot of people forgot that he's a dad. He was a new dad when all of this went down. And so 10 years, 20 years down the line, like those little babies are going to grow up. And seeing that just like I think that was what, 2015 when that came out. So she must have been like five. It was just so heartwarming. This is so wonderful that he has this loving relationship. He's certainly gone through turmoil that I would never wish upon anyone, ever. But I am so very happy to see that he has found some semblance of of heaven for himself on Earth. Yeah, I, my cousins and I, my cousins are very into K-pop. They're the ones who got me into K-pop. And I actually... I only ever knew about Tableau way before I listened to Epic High from The Return of Superman because my cousins were huge fans of the show and watched that while it was airing, basically, almost. And I just love the relationship with Haru and Tableau and even Tableau and Tableau's wife. He, like, clowns his wife a lot. And they have this, like, very <laughs> – the whole family's like, quirky and kind of childlike. And Haru's, like, the best. There's, like, a famous episode where she's meeting various artists from YG Entertainment. And she meets one of the members of Winner, Yoon, Sung Yoon. And Tableau introduces, like, hey, this is this, the oppa or the Samjoon or whatever that the guy who's like good looking the handsome one and she's like where <laughs> well she's like where where's where's the handsome opa like who is that <laughs> like and to his face i don't know they're so funny and they seem like such a like all three of them match made in heaven just like cute little family that like yeah are made for each other and i also really like you know the epic high members they mentioned the podcast were not really there for a lot of this because they were enlisted in the military service during all this when this all climaxed i guess to, to the highest levels of of everything but his members are so loyal like you see they're kind of quiet they're a little stoic sometimes and they clown him all the time too and but there's like this sense of like solid loyalty and just he has this like support system as small as it may be and I don't know how big or small he mentions that he doesn't have a ton of friends outside his members and his family I don't remember if he said that on the podcast or on the Twitter because I've been kind of like reading up on a lot of things and, and listening to a lot of things but yeah it's like whatever however small it is it's strong and I was mm -hmm. grateful for that as a fan like grateful to these people for that and like those people have so much must have so much inner strength because people who are all burgeoning on celebrity or being famous or whatever like his members could have ditched epic high i mean like you know what good luck oh, yeah. goodbye <laughs> like i'll go be a producer else i'll be a dj somewhere else i'll rap somewhere else i think that level of loyalty and support and just like we're here for you bro that's like silent and stoic is so <laughs> cool you know it's just really fantastic because if you think about it you like you can only really like roast and like wild out when you feel complete security i feel like i see that when i watched return of superman with him and his wife and his kid and his epic high members it's like that level of security of just like I'm going to be me and we're going to goof off and do these things, but it's cool because it's us. 
it's such a redeeming note. Like, I'm so happy that he was able to get that. I mean, I think that's the epitome of he's allowed to be authentic. I keep bringing back to this title like a corny person, but I keep saying it because <laughs> I think about it a lot. Like, he can be authentic with Hejong, which is the name of his wife. She had her own career. She was an old boy. She was like this renowned actress. And her career also suffered as a result of this. But she is just there. Like, she could have left him. She could have she could have dated and married some other celebrity, any other celebrity probably in Korea. <laughs> and just been like, you know what? I'm going to live a better, nicer life now. But she stayed with him and backs him up. And, like, I just like their dynamic from what I saw in Return of Superman. And it's underrated to be supportive of someone going through something yeah. like this. You could easily – because I bet he did lose a lot of friends who either were like, you know what? Maybe your degree is shady. Or they were just like, you know what? I can't deal with all this drama. Like, I know you didn't lie, but I just can't deal with this. And I think the people who stuck around – I mean, yeah, she's married to him, but she didn't have to stay that way. Divorce is real. <laughs> and then the members too. Like, it's just underrated the amount of pressure they were also under. And then choosing, making a conscious decision to stick around. Like, that's amazing. My cousins always talk about how Haru is the reason he's living. Like, honestly, he he kind of addresses these darker moments he had during all this and darker thoughts. And on his mindset, he talks a lot about like having super dark thoughts. And I think like literally his wife and his child are like his reason for living and reason for, you know, not giving up. And he's actually quite hopeful person. And if you ever follow him on Twitter or like listen to him, he says a lot of hopeful things. Like people ask him like parenting advice on Twitter and he's they're like, how do you raise Haru in this world where global climate change and now war and all this stuff is going down? Like, how do you raise? And he's like, I just have faith and hope that I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, I have faith and hope that things will change for the better too. Like, you know, things were bad when we were young at some point. And then you have good times, but he's hopeful. He's kind of like someone who looks forward and not so much back. And I think this is really the first time he's talked about this to this extent which has to be difficult for him but he does that he talks about it and I think he thinks it'll help other people well he says that in his Twitter spaces that like this will help other people potentially so that's why he's part of the reason he's doing it and you know Haru is growing up and she'll you know find out if she, I know he's told her a lot about this if not everything but she may find out more or she may something like this may happen to her so he that's his reason for doing this well, I'm so grateful you agreed to come on and share your perspective and just give us some insight. Not that this is like the only one or like the authoritative insight into what people in Korean society back at that time when this was going down, like might have been thinking. But I, I, I really appreciate it because I thought it was so valuable. It was so interesting. In the words of the Golden Girls theme song, thank you for being a friend. <laughs> And you're, of course, always welcome any other time to join us. I'm sure I'll ask you to join another time, at least in the future, if not many more times. So thank you so much again for your insight, for coming on and saying some really intelligent and awesome things. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of K-Pop Bookshelf. As a reminder, you can reach me on social media on Instagram at K-Pop Bookshelf Pod and on Twitter at K-Pop Bookshelf. You can also email me at kpopbookshelfpod at gmail.com. Be sure to check my blog to see the sources I used for researching this episode. The links in my bio and show notes will take you there. Special thanks to AO for designing my blog. Special thanks to Linda for participating in today's discussion. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend about this podcast. Okay, thanks. Bye. <laughs>